Welcome to the Cannabis Enlightened Podcast with Dr. Leroy, brought to you by March and Ash at marchandash.com. I'm Chris Cantori, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to your host, Dr. Leroy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fantastic episode of Cannabis Enlightened. I am your host, Dr. Leroy. And this episode, as all our episodes, are sponsored by March and Ash. Today, we are very fortunate to have with us an inspiring, gifted guest who meets the qualifications that I call of the double Bs, brilliant and beautiful. I'm going to have her introduce herself in just a minute. Um, Andrea is an attorney, and she's a very specialized attorney. And I thought that it would be a little bit different uh, from the guests that we've been having uh, from a scientific standpoint to have somebody from the legal area of cannabis to talk to us. So without any further ado, I'm going to ask Andrea to introduce herself to the audience and tell us a little bit about who you are, Andrea. Thank you, Dr. Brady. I am, oh, excuse me, Dr. Leroy. <laughs> I am very happy to be here, really excited to be here. My name is Andrea St. Julian. And as uh, you mentioned, I am an attorney. I am an appellate specialist, which means that I practice before the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court at both the California state level and also at the federal level. And I've been doing that for a number of years. So, wow. So, so does that mean that, okay, once a person has their day in court, okay, just regular proceeding, and they don't like what the decision that was made, they would come to somebody like you for an appeal. Yes. And you would take the appeal and then do what with it? Well, I would file the appeal and uh, then I would uh, take their case through that appellate process, which essentially means doing a lot of research, writing what's called an opening brief, and um, filing that with the court, uh, then eventually arguing that case before the Court of Appeal. Okay, fantastic. And I would imagine that every time you take an appeal, you're 100% successful. Oh, gosh, yes, I would love, I would love <laughs> that to be true. But uh, appeals are particularly difficult to win because of the structure of courts. Uh, a decision by a trial court is presumed to be correct. Okay. So the burden is really great when you get to the court of appeal. Uh, things are set up so that um, it, it's, it's meant for you not to be able to win an appeal. Because you have to understand, uh, when you get to the appellate level, it's not a do-over of what the trial court did. And I think that that's where people get most confused. And yeah. oftentimes, uh, when I get a new client, that's what I have to explain to them. Um, you know, your day in court is considered the proceeding that you have in the trial court. Okay? Right. When it gets to the court of appeal level, they are just checking to see if a very, very narrow type of mistake has been made. If that hasn't been made, then you don't win your, win your appeal. So it's not a do-over. And for example, one of the hardest things uh, when I uh, talk to my clients is that, um, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, at the trial court, you know, uh, you know, we didn't introduce this evidence and we didn't talk about this and this didn't happen. And then I have to tell my clients, I'm sorry, but 
evidence is only received in the trial court. The court of appeal does not receive new evidence. Mm. It only looks at the evidence that's been presented in the trial court. So, so that's very difficult. So, so yeah, uh, appeals are very, very difficult proceedings to win. So I'm probably going to get a little bit ahead of myself. So I'm going to go back. Can you, can you talk to us about what prepared you from an educational standpoint for where you are right now? Curiosity. (laughs) Okay. Seriously. Seriously. I, I mean, I'm a very, very curious person. Um, I also have a very strong sense of right and wrong and justice. And those are the two things that prepared me most for what I, what I do. Uh, in terms of education, more formal education, uh, certainly I you know, went to school undergrad and, and then I went to law school and then I practiced as an attorney, and then I became certified as an appellate specialist. And all those things were important and, of course, necessary to become yeah. an appellate attorney. But I think what the really bottom line things were my curiosity, my sense of right and wrong, and having really great parents who loved me, and having been bathed in the power of Black love. All right. All right. Now, I also read or heard somewhere that part of your education took you out of this country. That is correct. So that is correct. Where did you go? I did go to school uh, at uh, the Sorbonne, also known as the University of Paris. Ah. One of certainly uh, my favorite years of my young life, I, I have to say. It was a fabulous experience to live in Paris. My goodness. How, how many years? I just lived there one year, a little over yeah. a year. Okay. Uh, and uh, it was fabulous. And you prob- they probably had to bring you uh, kicking and screaming back to the United States, I bet you. My poor mother just knew I was never going to come back. I mean, <laughs> she just knew I was never going to come back. But I, I did want to finish up, finish getting my, my degree. So sure. I, I, I did come back. Sure. So how long have you been practicing law? I have been practicing law for 35 years. Oh my gosh. I know. My gosh. I know. I was 10 when I started practicing. <laughs> my goodness, I can't imagine. I mean, you, you must have been like 10 or 12 or something. <laughs> about that. About okay. That. Okay. So you've taken uh, during your 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 voyage in law, you've taken a number of different types of cases, okay? Mm-hmm. From um civil to um property law, maybe to uh, criminal law mm-hmm. you've, you've worked in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. I, I, I have, I, I do have uh, certain types of appeals that I do specialize in, but even before I started appellate work, I, I did trial work. And so I did trial work for uh, five years and, and had certain types of trial work that I did. I, uh, I specialized in malpractice defense uh, okay. of different types of malpractice. And uh, so medical malpractice, too. I didn't do medical. There were people in the firm I worked for that did medical malpractice, okay. but I did um, psychologist malpractice and real estate. Okay. And, and I did some real estate defense and insurance defense. And, okay. and so I did, you know, all types uh, of um, law in that regard. And then I started doing appeals after that. And uh, I would say one of the mainstays for my appeals 
would be indigent defense. I represent mm -hmm. people who are indigent, who are poor. Right. And those have mainly been my clients. I do take other types of clients as well, but I am uh, particularly interested in indigent defense. Uh, and in the state courts, my indigent, indigent defense is primarily uh, people involved in the foster care system. Um, and that's both uh, parents and children as well. And it depends, you know, I, I represent one or the other on a case. It's a very, very difficult area of law. It is probably an area of law where people have the least sympathy for people involved. Uh, very little, people have very little understanding of what the foster care system is really like and really about. And it's for many reasons. One is because we don't want to think about those people who abuse their children. Mm. And also the foster care system is a confidential system. So it doesn't see the light of day. So people don't really know what goes on there. But I have been doing those types of appeals for more than 20 years. So is that what you practice right now? I, I, I do, I do take, continue to take some of those appeals, but okay. um, uh, most of the appeals that I do now are federal uh, appeals in, in the ninth circuit court of appeal. And those appeals are criminal. So I do criminal okay. defense there. And again, I do other types of appeals as right. well, but um, the indigent appeals, the, the uh, appeals for the the poor or the unwashed, as I like to call them, mm. are really, they're really my uh, mainstay. I, I do kind of enjoy representing people that other people really don't want to represent. Right, right. So now you did mention a few minutes ago that you worked for a law firm. Mm -hmm. I did. But now, right now, currently you are in private practice? Oh, yes. I haven't worked for a, a law firm in 25, and no. 30 years. Uh, yeah, okay. I, have, I have my own law office. So you're, you're, you would say that from a legal standpoint, you're an entrepreneur. I actually, I am. Uh, okay. I am. I, uh, and I don't know if uh, I ever mentioned this to you before. That's funny that you say that, but I also have, uh, am founding a, a legal technology company as well. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, um, yes. So, uh, uh, the bottom line is there are very few tools for legal attorneys. Okay. Uh, we have very specialized needs, but no one really addresses those mm -hmm. with legal tools. So my company called Enodoc. Uh, Enodoc. Enodoc. Um, okay. and, uh, uh, and I'll tell you how I got that name, but um, Enodoc specializes in creating tools for people who who write, such a, like appellate attorneys, we spend all of our time researching and writing. Basically, anybody who's writing a citation-based document would um, benefit from the tools that Enodoc will be uh, creating. And the name Enodoc was thought up by a woman who was a synesthete, and it was the first time I had ever met a synesthete. Had always wanted to meet a synesthete. And she was as creative as I had imagined that she was. She would be. Uh, she was a synesthete who would see uh, numbers in, and colors would be related. 
Mm -hmm. So she had no barriers in between those things. And so colors and numbers would be related and she would, she would see them together. Okay. Cause you're educating me about this now too. Yeah. And I, I would, would imagine many of the people in the audience too. So yeah. this is great. Yeah, she was, it was, it was wonderful. I thought, how wonderful that I've always wanted to meet a synesthete and she comes up with the name of my company and Enodo in Latin means to untangle. Okay. And so my tools will help people untangle, untangle. masses of documents to write do uh, uh, so, other documents. So Andrea, is it safe to say that attorneys would come to you for advice on, you know, how to prepare a case uh, for trial? And maybe for the appellate? I, I do get calls from trial counsel all the time. They will usually uh, ask me one of two things. Um, uh, appellate attorneys really have to focus in on the niceties of the law, the, the real nitty gritty of laws and, and case law and language. And so often uh, a, a trial counsel will call and ask, you know, about a particular area of the law um, uh, and, and what the law is and what the nuances are in that, that, that particular area of the law. But they also would, will call and ask, um, how do I preserve an issue for appeal? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they'll ask other things. Um, they're... Uh, you know, there are appeals and then there's a whole other post conviction, for example, process called uh, the habeas process, which is different from appeals, but it is still similar. And appellate attorneys usually do uh, that kind of petition work with habeas petitions as well as appeals. So what does what does the habeas mean? Yeah, a habeas, you know, a habeas corpus petition means, um, you know, basically you have the body bringing the body it is called it's it's also called the great writ when all else fails right hmm. when things go wrong at trial when the appeal process doesn't go right if you are for example incarcerated you always have the ability to bring a habeas a, a petition to try to correct what has happened something that's happened wrong something that's happened uh, wrong that that had that um, that leaves you incarcerated. Okay. So the, the really bottom line of a habeas petition is that you are confined by the state in some manner and a habeas petition can be directed to correct that. Okay. So now I'm going to hit you with the big one with all of that. What brings you into the cannabis space? How, how did you find your way from Paris, France to cannabis. So I always like to start uh, the answer to that question by being completely transparent. Okay. Um, I did not originally come from the cannabis space. I, not only do I not use cannabis, uh, I have never tried cannabis and I've actually never even seen cannabis. Okay. <laughs> and so, uh, and, oh, and I have to go even further. Okay. Um, I am vegan. Okay. Uh, I, uh, I go to yoga five times a week, uh, walk five miles every Sunday. Uh, I am, I don't eat any high glycemic index foods. I could go on and on and on about how health conscious I am. So when, 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 um, do you do anything bad? 
Do you eat ice cream? <laughs> oh goodness. I'm vegan. You know, I don't eat sugar. I don't eat cane sugar. Oh my gosh. Um, so, uh, when I first told my family and friends mm -hmm. that I was really very, um, uh, uh, let's see, I don't even know the word that I was re I was pursuing cannabis social equity and that I was really becoming very committed to that. Mm -hmm. They were pretty shocked. They were like, cannabis? What, what, what? They probably knew it by another word. <laughs> we don't like to use on this uh, program, but it's okay if it yeah. sneaks in there sometimes. Yeah, they were they were just they were just shocked. Why would why would you do this? So, um, and uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a long answer on this one because it is a, it's a bit of a journey. But okay. so one of the reasons why I went into the law and practiced appeals is because a desire to hopefully change the structure of our legal system through the work I was doing. Right. Because especially in appeals, you set, you help set precedents and things like that. And after having done that for a number of years, I did not think that I was really helping that cause because I think it, it was just it, that system is not set up to allow change from within. Okay. And at that point, I decided to take my social justice um, proclivities in a different direction. Okay. And at that point, uh, I, uh, and I won't go into all the details because it would take way too long, but I became the principal author of a charter amendment of um, that of a proposed charter amendment for the city of San Diego to create a commission on police practices, which was a community community led commission to oversee complaints against the police. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I became the principal author on that and then worked with various groups in San Diego to get that on the ballot. It took about five or six years to do that because law enforcement is very powerful here and they fought us viciously for five or six years. But eventually we did get that on the ballot. And then along the way, in order to really put it over the line of getting it onto the ballot and then making sure that it passed, I formed a political action committee called San Diegans for Justice. And when you say here, you're, you're, as you just said, you're, you're talking about San Diego police. Sa yes, okay. San Diego City Police Department. So okay. I formed a, a, a political action committee called uh, um, San Diegans for Justice. Um, despite the years of sabotage uh, that we had gone through, despite the fact um, that, uh, you know, Police, the police department, and and the uh, um, elected officials had fought us tooth and nail. Um, uh, not only did we eventually get it on the ballot, at the ballot box we won with seventy five percent of the vote. Wow! That was, and this is a that was a police reform measure right. in San Diego. Okay, yes. and we won uh, with a higher percentage than any other measure, any other proposition. 
and even any elected official than the the whole of San Diego County. Wow. Okay? And we did that like with no money. <laughs> I mean, we were totally grassroots and community based. Okay. So I learned a lot sure. over that five or six years. And so I had someone in the community approach me. And uh, 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 he said to me, you know, Andrea, um, we need to bring social equity to the cannabis industry here in San Diego. Would you help us? And what did they mean by social equity? Because that's, that's a big, big, even though it's, it's, a, it's you know, two words, mm -hmm. it's a big area, social equity. So what did they mean by social equity? You know, I'm not sure exactly what they meant, but this was the story that was told to me that just hooked me. You know, I mean, it just hooked me. Okay. You know, they started talking to me about how black and brown people were targeted so heavily for incarceration, mm -hmm. particularly around drugs and cannabis. And now, now that cannabis is legal, they are being locked out of the cannabis industry. And now when you say locked out of the yeah. cannabis industry, mm -hmm. Um, now it was it was legalized here in California in 2016, I believe. Mm -hmm. So um, when cannabis began to be sold here in California, mm -hmm. you're saying that they they couldn't own um, a dispensary or they couldn't grow it or in, in what ways were they locked out? So this was this was one example that they gave me that I found absolutely appalling. They said, Andrea. You know, there's a city here in San Diego County that only allows you to have a cannabis dispensary if you have either run a liquor store or a pharmacy and you have $250,000 in assets. Wow. And I thought, I, and they really knew my number because <laughs> when I heard that. That got you going. I was <laughs> livid. I was so disgusted. Uh, and I thought, oh, yeah, I got to get into this. You know, okay. I said that that is so blatantly unjust. Okay. You know, though, uh, I, 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 again, I'm going back there. I'm getting upset now, just thinking about it. Okay. Uh, uh, well, we don't. We don't want you to get too upset. So <laughs> come down here with me. Here. So, um, and it speaks to a larger issue. That is still one that I don't think is being addressed. One thing that, that we don't look at is artificial barriers that are raised uh, to keep people out of industries and economic success, okay? Mm. That is such a standard uh, in, within our country. And we don't even recognize that that's what's going on, right? Because we wonder why is there such a huge economic disparity, uh, you know, you know, based on you know race or, or or sometimes even even gender or how does that happen, you know, how do we how did we create this, the you know the 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 one percent, and I, I want to tell people it's not an accident and it's not a it's not a uh, wasn't because of of, of uh, some people are innately better than other people. It's because we have laws and structures that create that. Mm. 
And that law that I was just telling you about is one example of that. If that, that law has nothing to do with having a healthy and rational cannabis industry in San Diego that is um, safe for anyone. It has to do with putting up barriers so that people who do not have the um, uh, backgrounds to have $250,000 in wealth or to have run a liquor store or a pharmacy, those people can't even get in the door. Okay. And, and we have never drilled down on the nature of those kind of laws and regulations, but that is what hurts our society in economic terms so badly. So some of that is not artificial. You you mentioned that word a few minutes ago, Mm -hmm. but some of those are actual barriers. I mean, I, I, I think I know, I don't know too many people that own a liquor store and a pharmacy Maybe they have $250,000, but to put all those together would be difficult. Um, What artificial barriers could you, do you know of, or or were you looking at at this time? Yeah. Um, You know, when I first got started, I knew, I truly knew nothing about cannabis, right? When when we we were going back, I knew nothing about cannabis. Um, uh, So I, I really had... Uh, to learn about cannabis. So, but my space was a social equity space, right? That that's where, what motivated me and, and, and what I brought to, to um, looking at this and, you know, going back to the question that you originally asked me, what is social equity? And you're right. It, it uh, can be difficult to define. um, But I think, and I think, I think most people don't define it, which is a problem. And that really is where the conversation has to start. We have to start by defining what social equity is. And so the way I think it's generally looked at is that uh, cannabis social equity is an attempt to right the wrongs of the war on cannabis, particularly with respect to, to those individuals and groups who were most harmed by the war on drugs or the war on cannabis. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, that's a big, you, yeah. just, you just brought in a big suitcase. <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot to unpack there because pe- this, this, this is the standard language that most people use, mm-hmm. but there, there's things that you've really got to break down in there and figure out what, what exactly do you mean? So the first one is, do you really mean the war on drugs or, ju- or do you just mean the war on cannabis? Okay. And uh, because if you're talking about the legalization of cannabis and that helping to right wrongs, exactly which wrongs are you talking about? Is it, is it all drugs or just cannabis? So that's a discussion that most people need to have. Yeah. Um, then um, you have to decide who are you talking about when you say that people are harmed? Um, uh People reflexively think about people who have been incarcerated for either drugs or cannabis. But if you really look at the language of who has been harmed, that means so much more. Um, If you have a child who grew up without a father because her father was incarcerated for cannabis, that child was harmed, right? If you had uh, a woman whose husband was 
incarcerated or the, the father of her child was incarcerated because of drugs or cannabis for an extended period of time. And he was not there to help her and help her raise the child. That woman has been uh, harmed as well. Think about that same man who has been incarcerated. Think about his parents. Think about maybe his elderly parents who could have used his help and support. They were harmed. Okay. Um, so we have to define who we're talking about when we're talking about, you know, who, who was harmed by, by uh, the war on drugs. So directly or indirectly, because you, you can't right the wrong as it pertains to the people who are directly harmed, because they may not be alive anymore. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about people that were harmed that are, are, are living now. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. as, re as a result of what happened. And you, uh, yeah, drugs. that could okay. be a way of defining it. I mean, if you okay. want to define it any, even more okay. broadly, you could. But, but then there is a, a third piece that people often don't talk about, when, especially when you're thinking about how disproportionately harmed um, uh, the uh, black and brown people were you have to look at that whole communities were also harmed. Mm. When you take a significant number of, uh, you know, young men and women out of the community because you have incarcerated them because of drugs or cannabis, you have harmed that entire community. Right. Okay. And so you've got to look at that harm. So you first have to start out talking about, okay, who do we, who, who, who do we include in that harm, okay, in terms of social equity? And so the next thing that, again, is I think a little finer point that, excuse me, people assume, but may not really voice, what type of harm do you want to address? What kind of harm do you want to try to make whole? Certainly, there's a lot of psychological and emotional harm that's been done. I would think uh, implicitly people aren't talking about that necessarily, but you could talk about that. I think implicitly what most people are talking about is the economic harms that were, that were done to people. But again, that, that's a subject of discussion. You know, do you want to just try to address the economic harms or do you want to try to address larger harms. So these are conversations that we really have to have and that everyone has to have who is looking at defining social equity and how to go about um, implementing social equity. And that is the biggest problem. I see so many times that people or, or, or jurisdictions want to run ahead and have some type of social equity program. And it's like, wait a second, you haven't even defined what social equity is. You don't, right. you haven't defined what your goal is. You don't know who you're trying to help and you don't know how you're trying to help them. You've got to do that work first. So is that, is that what's being done now in various communities looking at, because it sounds like you're talking about um, either a community or individuals. Mm-hmm. Or are we looking at both? You're looking at communities and individuals and families. And families. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, uh, I wish I could say that I see a, a lot of activity around that conversation, but I, I, I have to even go back a little bit. A lot of 
when you think of who is implementing social equity, cannabis social equity, they are mainly government entities and jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. And um, they really don't, don't know. know. <laughs> they don't know. They don't know to even ask these things. Right. You know, they're trying to run ahead to tick off a box and not in any bad way. I don't I don't mean that in a bad way. They just don't know. I mean, they they really don't know. I was having a conversation recently with a jurisdiction who shall remain nameless. OK. And uh, that jurisdiction wanted to talk to me about social equity. And, you know, they were really proud that they were actually getting ready to, to do to implement uh, or, or to start with a, some kind of social equity. And they had gone to a non-BIPOC entity that they had always used that had no experience, not only in cannabis, but also no experience with BIPOC communities and wanted them to do a social equity assessment so they could crunch the numbers. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, oh no, that that's not going to, you know, they, and the problem was they didn't even know the questions to ask to even start to take the right approach. So, so now wait a minute, you're talking about before you can even do a social equity program, yeah. You have to do an assessment. Oh, yes. So the assessment is supposed to show if a community has been harmed. It has to show the, the purpose of a social equity assessment is to assess who has been harmed. Okay? okay. And to get an understanding of what harms were caused in that specific jurisdiction by the either the war on drugs or the war on cannabis. And again, oftentimes that's not even really defined, but you really yeah. do have to know which one you're talking about. But to do that assessment, to even find out who has been harmed, you have to have such a delicate insight into what, what types of harms can there be? How mm -hmm. could people have been harmed? What causes these harms? That takes, for, for you to be able to do that, for an assessor to be able to do that, you have to have such a deep understanding of the harms caused to BIPOC communities and communities by the war on drugs. That's really complicated. And it is not simply number crunching. So let's say that an assessment has been made. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, a jurisdiction, city or county, they, they, they do an assessment and they, they determine that um, a particular area has been harmed. So the next step is, I would imagine, a social equity program. Yes. Putting yes. together a social equity. OK, so as you put together a social equity program and from your standpoint, as, as you give you know, legal advice, um, how do you find people that would be able to qualify for a social equity program? So um, that's a big, big question. Okay. And part of your question assumed some things, which we may have to unpack a little bit there. Okay. So a lot of people assume that in addressing the harms caused by the war on drugs, that the solution is getting what we, what people call social equity applicants or, or the people that an assessment has been shown have been harmed. Uh, by the war on drugs is getting them uh, some type of cannabis license. Okay. 
And of course. And who gives out these licenses? Well, well, we're not we're not there yet. <laughs> okay, Dr. Okay. Leroy, we're not we're not there yet. Okay. Because that would be a really bad assumption to just assume that we're just talking about handing out some licenses, okay? We because and and that's another part of the problem. Um, we are, uh, you know, all these jurisdictions often are not thoughtful enough ahead of time. They they keep assuming these things. There are people who were harmed by the war on cannabis who, you know, and I hate to break it to you, but their dream in life is not to own a dispensary. You know, they may have been harmed, but they may not want to own a dispensary. They may not even want to go into the cannabis industry. Does that mean that their harm shouldn't be addressed? I don't think so, mm. you know? Um, and also, um, how how do you address a harm done to an entire community? Okay, mm-hmm. is a, a license isn't gonna address that harm, okay? So, so you gotta step back first mm-hmm. and you've gotta understand not only who has been harmed, but you have to understand how that community, how that family, how that individual can best have, uh, uh, feels that it's best to address the harms that they've suffered. So you've got to have that whole discussion first before you even get to the whole cannabis licensing thing. But we'll get there. Okay. We'll go there, Doctor okay. Dr. Leroy. We'll okay. go there. All right. um, so uh, I have a lot to say on that, but uh, on that first part. But we'll we'll go to the to the, um, to the licensing pro- uh, process. Um, so. It's, it's really difficult in terms of licensing because I, I will say that, uh, as you probably know, I don't know if there is a, um, a successful, a truly successful social equity program in the country. And I'm being generous when I say that. I'm, I'm pretty sure that there isn't. There, uh, I have never met a person who says, oh yeah, there's this really successful social equity program in this jurisdiction. No, no, uh, I, they are considered really uh, failures. Um, and um, uh, that's for many reasons. And one thing I do have to say, um, and I will get to answer your question okay. at, a, at a point, at, a, at some point, uh, right. uh, uh, Dr. Leroy, but um, the, the first, the problem is that starts out, and this is, I know it's a totally attorney perspective, but it really is a truth that that needs to be addressed. Jurisdictions create these cannabis laws, right? And they create these this permitting and all this this stuff and all these laws. And then later on, they add on a social equity program. Uh, okay, so it's an afterthought. Okay, that is completely and totally wrong. Okay, once once you have this structure for cannabis. You can't just add on social equity as an afterthought because the problems that haunt social equity applicants are already baked in to the structure of the uh, cannabis laws that have already been made. And you can't just just add on a social equity program and expect it to work. It won't. It doesn't. It doesn't work. And one of the things that I think is most difficult with that is, you know, I meet... um, you know, uh, social equity applicants and social equity individuals who have their own businesses. And they'll say, man, what I really need is access to capital. They don't understand mm. that I really need access to capital. 
And I, I get that. I understand that. Um, but, but what I also say, cause again, I can't help it. It's my perspective as an attorney. I want to go back to the, really the root of things. And I want to say, so, you know, I don't know much about the plant itself, but I know that they call it weed. And last time I looked most weeds weren't that, that difficult to grow. So I can't see where it's that hard or that expensive, why that should be that expensive to grow a weed. And I know I'm being a little facetious and I know that it does take real expertise to cultivate marijuana. Sure. But my point is that the reason why you need so much capital is because of the structures that have been in, put in place to make it so expensive um, and to require you to need so much capital. These okay? road, roadblocks. So many. It's, it's, okay. it's ridiculous. All the roadblocks have been that have been placed for um, for, uh, cannabis. And so if I'm talking about social equity and I'm talking about making sure that, um, social equity applicants and really all, you know, um, local individuals and, and grassroots individuals have a real opportunity of getting into the cannabis industry. If they, if they want to, what I'm going to go back to is this structure that you have created that is going to require you to come up with one or $2 million to be able to start your business. I, I I'm going to go back and I'm going to dismantle that. Okay. That's where we really need to start. Okay. And, but first, but we even have, we have to understand that. So that's why I kind of cringe when I hear social ec uh, equity uh, people tell me, gosh, what I really need is access to capital. Yes, I understand that. But what we really need to do is dismantle the structure that is requiring you to have to come up with all that money. So it sounds like what you're saying to me now is that social equity is more than laws. It's more than the two words, mm -hmm. social and equity. It's more than uh, creating a structure um, of saying that we need to have social equity in this particular uh, area. It's, it's providing all the support necessary for a person to be successful in a social equity endeavor. Yes. But now the social equity um, provides a, a license to someone so that's one of the reasons why um, things have been so unsuccessful. A lot of the social equity programs that have been started um, at their base have just been uh, uh, a tool to say, okay, we're going to give X number of permits to people who qualify as social equity. And, and usually there are three things that, that they look at to qualify for, uh, look at uh, in terms of characteristics to qualify someone as social equity applicants. So I actually am going to answer that question now. Okay. So they usually first look at whether someone was incarcerated uh, for um, uh, a cannabis conviction. Okay. Um, and some may even use uh, other drugs uh, as well, but cannabis. And then they will often look at geography. Uh, were you raised or do you live or did you live at an air in an area where historically they had higher rates for cannabis arrests and or convictions? Okay. And they, they'll usually, um, uh, look at that. And then the third thing they often look at is your income level. 
Okay. So if you have, if you, for example, one of them is if, if you make 80% of the median income, for, for example. So okay. those are the three tools uh, that they look at. Um, and at least uh, particularly here in California, because we have uh, Proposition 209 here in California, which um, uh, does not allow uh, government entities to create programs based on uh, preferential treatment or disparate treatment based on race. And so that is why a lot of social equity programs or most social equity programs in California can't explicitly use race as a criteria for getting a social equity license. Um, kind of defeats the purpose then. It does. And uh, I am not, I, I, it's a whole <laughs> other conversation for us to have a legal conversation on whether Prop 209 really prevents that. Um, that's, uh, and I, I want to go on record yeah. right now with saying that we are going to have you back because <laughs> this is, this is not the kind of topic that can be discussed in 45 minutes to an hour. There's so, so much to talk about. Yeah. This uh, is like part one. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so generally those three criteria are what people look at to determine if someone is a social equity applicant. It really often misses the mark in terms of people who have really been harmed by social equity. And, and one, it addresses only the people who have been arrested, maybe sometimes. It will also include relatives, um, but it certainly has nothing to do with communities that have been harmed. So it doesn't even address that harm. But this is, this is the other problem that it also doesn't address. Okay, you give someone who was incarcerated at some point uh, for cannabis, you give them a license. Mm -hmm. That person may have been incarcerated for a very significant period of time in their lives, or at least a critical, they may have been incarcerated at a critical juncture in their lives, and therefore may have deficits in terms of education. You give that person a license and not just in terms of education, but also in terms of finances. Mm -hmm. Last time I looked, you know, prison wages didn't pay that much. I don't know, 30 cents an hour or something like that. Um, so, um, right. so they've got a license, but what are they going to do with that? They don't, they don't have any money. Their incarceration has kept them from being able to amass the sums that they're going to need or to amass the experience and background that will allow them to get funding from other places, okay? Um, and then also, what about the uh, uh, business acumen that they're going to need to do something with that license? They've been incarcerated. They haven't had, had the ability to gain that acumen. So you give that person a license and they are faced with... Um, unfortunate alternatives and are usually taken advantage of time and time again. Um, again, I'm just, just starting to think about the stories of people being taken advantage of. And I'm, and I'm getting, getting so upset just <laughs> thinking about that. But well, what I'm going to need you to do yes. for us, yes. because you have just opened up like Pandora's box here, we're going to need you to come back and talk about some of those horror stories that have occurred um, because of social equity or 
um, maybe in spite of social equity th that have led it down a wrong road. And perhaps you can talk about some situations in which social equity is being looked at from a more positive standpoint, and it's being put together by different entities throughout um, California or throughout the country in which it, it does give people that have been harmed um, from the war on drug, either drugs, either that individual or the communities or offsprings, an opportunity to build um, um, a, a, a store or a business. So I, I think that I think that we might want to stop here so that we can have you come back at your earliest convenience and talk about some of those things. What do you say? I would be honored, Dr. Leroy, to come back. Okay, very good. Excellent. So once again, we have been speaking with uh, Andrea St. Gillian. She is an appellate uh, attorney, a very successful one. And as I said at the beginning of our program, she meets the two Bs. She's brilliant and she's beautiful. And she's talking about social equity, where we are on social equity, um, what are the good things and some of the bad things about social equity. And this at least started our education into what is social equity as it applies to the cannabis industry. I'm your host, Dr. Leroy. This has been Cannabis Enlightened. <laughs>